from MIT Technology Review, I'm Laurel Ruma, and this is Business Lab, the show that helps business leaders make sense of new technologies coming out of the lab and into the marketplace. Our topic today is artificial intelligence and physical applications. AI can run on a chip, on an edge device, in a car, in a factory, and ultimately, AI will run a city with real-time decision-making thanks to fast processing, small devices, and continuous learning. Two words for you, smart factory. My guest is Dr. Stefan Jokush, who is Vice President of Strategy for Siemens Digital Industries Software. He is responsible for strategic business planning and market intelligence. And Stefan also coordinates projects across business segments and with Siemens Digital Leadership. This episode of Business Lab is produced in association with Siemens Digital Industries. Welcome, Stefan. Hi, thanks for having me. So if we could start off a bit, could you tell us about Siemens Digital Industries? What exactly do you do? Yeah, in the Siemens Digital Industries, uh, we are the technical software business. So we develop software that supports the whole process from the initial idea of a product like a new cell phone or smartwatch uh, to the design and then the manufactured product. So that includes the mechanical design, the software that runs on it, and even the chips that power that device. So with our software, you can put all this into the digital world. And we, we like to talk about what you get out of that as the digital twin. So you have a digital twin of everything, the behavior, the physics, the simulation, the software, and the chip. And you can, of course, use that digital twin uh, to basically do any decision or try out how the product works, how it behaves, uh, before you even have to build it. That's, in a nutshell, what we do. So staying on that idea of the digital twin, uh, how do we kind of explain the idea of chip to city? Like how can manufacturers actually simulate a chip, its functions, and then the product, say, as a car, as well as the environment surrounding that car? Yeah, the, behind that idea is really the thought that uh, today in the future and today already, we have to build products uh, enabling the people who work on that to see the whole rather than just a little piece. So this is why we make it as big as to say from chip to city, uh, which really means uh, when you design a chip that runs in a vehicle of today and more so in the future, uh, you have to take a lot of things into account while you are designing that chip. You kind of have to have an idea if the chip, for example, controls the interpretation of things that the camera see for autonomous driving. You have to have an idea how many uh, images that chip has to process or how many things are moving on those images. And are these pedestrians, what recognition do you have to do? You have to understand a lot about what will happen uh, in the end. So the idea is to enable a designer at the at the chip level to understand the actual behavior of a product and uh, what's happening today especially is that uh, we don't develop cars anymore just to to 
with a, with a car in mind, we more and more are connecting vehicles to the environment, to each other. And one of the big purposes, as we all know, if that is, of course, to improve uh, the, the uh, contamination in cities and also the traffic in cities. So really to, uh, to make these metropolitan areas more livable. So that's also something that we have to take into account in this whole process chain if we want to see the whole as a designer. So this is the background of this whole idea, chip to city. And uh, again, the way it should look like for a designer, if you think about, I'm, I'm, I'm designing like this vision module in a car and uh, I want to understand uh, how, uh, how powerful it has to be. I have a way to immerse myself into a simulation, a very accurate one, and I can see what data my vehicle will see, what's in them, how many sensor inputs I get from other sources and what I have to do. I can, I can really play through all of that. I really like that framing of um, being able to see the whole, not just the piece of this incredibly complex uh, way of thinking, building, delivering. So to get back down to that piece level, how does AI play a role at the chip level? Uh, AI is a lot about uh, supporting uh, or even making the right decision uh, in real time. Uh, and that's, I think, where AI and the chip level uh, become so important together. Uh, because we all know that a lot of smart things can be done uh, if you have a big computer sitting somewhere in a data center. But AI on the chip level is really very targeted at these applications that need real-time performance and a performance that doesn't have time to communicate a lot. And, um, and, and today it's really evolving to that uh, the chips that do AI applications are now designed already in a very specialized way, whether they have to do a lot of compute power or whether they have to conserve energy as best as they can, so be, be very low power consumption, or whether they need more memory. So um, yeah, it's, it's becoming a more and more commonplace thing that we see AI embedded in tiny little chips. And then probably in future cars, we will have a dozen or so uh, semiconductor level AI applications for different things. Well, that brings up a good point because it's the humans who are needing to make these decisions in real time um, with these tiny chips on devices. So how does the complexity of something like continuous learning with AI not just help the AI become smarter, but also affect the output of data, which then eventually, <laughs> even though very quickly, allows the human to make better decisions in real time? I would say most applications of AI today are rather designed to help make help a human make a good decision rather than making the decision. I don't think we trust it quite that much yet. So as an example, uh, in, in our own software, like so many makers of software, we are starting to use AI to make it easier and faster to use. So for example, uh, you have these very complex design applications that can do a lot of things. And of course, they have hundreds of menus. So we have one application where the program watches the user and uh, tries to predict the command the user is going to use next. So just to offer it and just say, is, aren't you about to do this? And of course, you talked about the continuous improvement, continuous learning. The longer uh, the application can watch the user, the more accurate it will be. It's, it's currently already at a level of over 95%. 
uh, but of course, continuous learning improves it. And by the way, this is also a way to use AI, not just to help a single user, but to start uh, encoding a knowledge and experience of very experienced and good users and make it available to other users. Like, like if a very experienced engineer uh, does that and uses AI, Uh, and you basically take those learned lessons from that engineer and give it to someone less experienced who has to do a similar thing, that experience will help the the new user as well, or the, the novice user. That's really uh, compelling because you're right, you're building a knowledge database, a, a, an actual database of data. Um, and then also this all helps the AI eventually, but then also really does help the human because you are trying to extend this knowledge to as many people as possible. Now, when we think about that and AI at the edge, how does this change opportunities for the business, um, whether you're a manufacturer or the person using the device? Yeah, in, in general, of course, there's it's a, it's a way for everyone who makes a smart product to differentiate, to create differentiation, because all these the functions enabled by AI, of course, are... Um, Are, are smart and they, they give some differentiation. What are the examples I just mentioned, um, where you can predict what a user will do, that of course is something that uh, many pieces of software don't have yet. So it's a way to differentiate. And um, it certainly opens lots of opportunities to create these very highly differentiated uh, pieces of functionality, whether it's in software or in vehicles or in other, any other area. So if we were actually to apply this perhaps to a smart factory and how people think of a manufacturing chain of first this happens and then that happens and a car door is put on and then an engine is put in or whatever, what can we apply to that kind of traditional way of thinking of a factory and then apply this AI thinking to it? Well, we can start with the the oldest problem, a factory has had ever since i mean factories have always been about producing something very efficiently and without and continuously and leveraging the resources so any factory tries to be up and running whenever it's supposed to be up and running have no un, unpredicted or uh, unplanned downtime so uh, ai is starting to become a great tool to do this and i can give you a very hands-on example from uh, a siemens uh, factory that does printed circuit boards. And one of the steps they have to do is milling of these circuit boards. They have a milling machine and any milling machine, especially one like that, that's highly automated and robotic, uh, it has a tendency to goo up over time, to get dirty. And so one challenge is to um, uh, have the right maintenance because you don't want the machine to fail right in the middle of a shift and create this unplanned downtime. So one one big challenge is to figure out when this machine has to be maintained without, of course, maintaining it every day, which would be very expensive. So we are using actually uh, an uh, AI application on an edge device that's sitting right in the factory to monitor that machine and make a fairly accurate prediction when it's time to do the maintenance and clean the machine so it not fail in the next shift. So this is just one example And uh, I believe there is hundreds of potential applications that may not be totally worked out yet in this area of really making sure that factories uh, uh, produce consistent high quality, that there's no un 
planned downtime of the machines. Um, there's, of, of course, a lot of use already of AI in like visual quality inspections. So there's tons and tons of applications on the factory floor. And this has massive implications for manufacturers because, as you mentioned, it saves money. Right. So is this um, a tough shift, do you think, for executives to kind of think about investing in technology in a, in a bit of a different way to then get all of those benefits? Yeah, it's like with every technology. Uh, I would say it's a big block. There's a lot of interest at this point, And there's many, many manufacturers with initiatives in that space. Um, so it's, it's, I would say it's, it's, it's probably going to create a significant uh, progress in productivity, but it, of course, mean, also means investment. And um, uh, I can say since, the, since it's, it's fairly predictable here to see what the payback of this investment will be, as far as we can see, uh, there's a lot of positive uh, uh, energy there to make this investment and to modernize factories. What kind of modernizations you need for the workforce? in the factories when you are installing and plying kind of retooling to have AI applications in mind? That's a great question because sometimes I would say many users of artificial intelligence applications probably don't even know they're using one. So sometimes it's, it's really, so you basically get a box and it will tell you uh, it's recommended to maintain this machine. Now the operator probably will, will know what to do, but not necessarily know what technology they're working with. Uh, but that said, of course, um, there will probably will be some, I would say, almost emerging specialties or emergency uh, emerging uh, um, skills for uh, engineers to really uh, how to use and how to optimize these AI applications that they use on the factory floor. Because as I said, we have these applications that are up and running and working today, but to get to those applications to be really useful, to be accurate enough, uh, that of course to this point needs a lot of expertise and leads to some some uh, iteration as well. And um, uh, there's probably not too many people today who really are experienced enough with the technologies and also understand the factory environment well enough to do this. I think this is a fairly pretty. Uh, rare skill these days and to make this a more commonplace application of course we will have to create more of these experts who are really good at, at making ai factory floor ready and getting it to the right maturity that seems to be a, an excellent opportunity right for people to learn new skills uh, this is not an example of ai taking away jobs and kind of that um, more negative connotations that you get when you, you talk about ai and business um, you know, in practice, if we combine all of this and talk about VinFast, the Vietnamese car manufacturer that wanted to do things quite a bit differently um, than traditional car manufacturing, um, first they, they built a factory, but then they applied that kind of overarching thinking of chip to factory and then eventually to city. So kind of coming back full circle, why is this thinking unique especially for a car manufacturer, and what kind of opportunities and, and challenges do they have? Yeah, VinFast is an interesting example because uh, when, when they got into making vehicles, they basically started on a green field. And that is probably the biggest difference uh, between VinFast and the vast majority of the major automakers that 
all of them are 100 or more years old and uh, have, have, of course, a lot of, uh, of uh, history, which then translates into having existing factories or having a, a lot of things that were really built before the age of digitalization. So MinFast started from a green field. And uh, with that, uh, that, of course, is a big challenge, makes it very difficult. But the advantage was that they really had the opportunity to start off uh, with uh, a full digitalized approach that they were able to use uh, software because they were basically constructing everything. And they could really start off with this fairly complete digital twin of not only their product, uh, but also they designed their whole factory uh, on a computer before even starting to build it. And then they build it in record time. So that's probably the, the big uh, unique aspect that they have this opportunity to be completely digital. And once you are at that stage, once you can really say my whole design, my, my, of course, my software running on the vehicle, but also my whole factory, my whole factory automation, I already have this in a fully digital way and I can run through simulations and scenarios. Uh, that also means you have a great starting point to use these uh, AI technologies to optimize your factory or to make the to um, help the workers uh, with the uh, additional optimizations and so on. Do you think it's um, impossible to be one of those hundred-year-old manufacturers and and slowly? adopt these kind of technologies, uh, you probably don't have to have a greenfield environment. It just makes everything easy, or I should say easier, right? Yeah, all of them. I mean, the auto industry has traditionally been one of the, the, the one that invested most in productivity and in digitalization. So all of them are uh, on that path. Um, uh, and, and of course, they 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 get to there again. They don't have this very unique situation that you, or rarely have this unique situation that you can really start from a blank slate. But uh, a lot of the software technology, of course, also is uh, is kind of uh, adapted to that scenario. Where, for example, you have an existing factory, so it doesn't help you a lot to design a factory on the computer if you already have one. So you use these technologies that allow you to go through the factory and like do a 3D scan. So you you know exactly how the factory looks like from the inside without having it designed in a computer because you essentially uh, produce that information after the fact. So that's definitely what the established or the traditional automakers do a lot. Uh, and um, where they also basically bring the digitalization even into the existing environment. You know, we're really discussing the the implications when companies can use simulations and scenarios to apply AI. So when you can, whether or not it's Greenfield or you're adopting it for your own factory, um, what happens to the business? What what are the outcomes? What are some of the, the opportunities that are possible when AI can be applied to the actual chip, to the car, and then eventually to the city, to a larger ecosystem? Yeah, when we really think about the impact to the business, I, I frankly think we are at the beginning of uh, understanding and uh, and calculating what the value of of faster and more accurate uh, decisions really is, which are enabled by AI. Uh, I don't think we have a very complete understanding at this point. Uh, and um, it, it's fairly obvious to everybody that uh, digitalizing like the design process 
and uh, the manufacturing process, it not only saves uh, R&D effort and R&D money, uh, but it also helps optimize uh, like the supply chain inventories, uh, the manufacturing costs and the total cost of the new product. And, and that is really where, um, where different aspects of the business come together. And I would frankly say... Um, we start to understand like the immediate effects. We start to understand if I have an AI-driven quality check, uh, that will reduce my my waste. So I, ca- I can understand that kind of business value. But there is a whole dimension of business value of using this optimization that really translates to the whole enterprise. And um, I would say there's a lot of work happening to understand these implications better. But uh, I would say at this point, we are still we're just at the starting point of doing this, of really understanding what can optimization of a process do for the enterprise as a whole. So optimization, continuous learning, continuous improvement. Uh, you know, this makes me think of, and cars, of course, uh, the Toyota Way, which is that seminal book that was written in 2003, which is amazing because it's still current um, today, but with lean manufacturing, is it possible for AI to continuously improve the, at the chip level, at the factory level, at the city to help these, dis- improve, to help these businesses make better decisions? Yeah, in my view, the the, um, the Toyota way would, again, uh, the book published like in the early 2000s with continuous improvement. Um, in my view, continuous improvement, uh, of course, always can do a lot, but uh, there's a little bit of recognition in the last, I would say, five to 10 years, somewhere like that. Uh, that continuous improvement might be at the might have hit uh, the wall of what's possible. So there is a lot of thought since then of what is really the next paradigm for manufacturing. When you stop thinking about evolution and optimization, and you think about more revolution, and uh, there is one of the concepts that have been developed here is called Industry 4.0, which is really the thought about turning upside down the idea of how manufacturing or how how the value chain can work and really think about what if I get to factories that are completely self-organizing, which is a kind of a revolutionary step because today, mostly a factory is set up around a certain idea of what products it makes. And then you have lines and conveyors and stuff like that. And they're all bolted to the floor. So it's fairly static, the original idea of of a factory. And you can optimize it in an evolutionary way for a long time, but you you never break through that threshold. So the newer thoughts or the the, um, other concepts that are being thought about are like, what if my factory consists of like independent moving robots and the robots can do different tasks. They can transport material or they can then switch over to holding a robot arm or a gripper. And uh, depending on what product I throw at this factory, it will completely reshuffle itself and work differently. And then I come in with a very different product and it will self-organize itself to do something different. So those are kind of some of the paradigms that uh, are being thought of today, which, of course, I can only become a reality with a heavy use of, of AI technologies in them. And um and, and we think they are really going to revolutionize at least what some uh, kinds of manufacturing will do. Like what today we talk a lot about lot size one and that uh, customers uh, want more and more 
options and variations in the product. So the factories who are able to do this to really produce very customized products very efficiently, they have to look much different. So in, in many ways, I think there's a lot of validity to the approach of uh, of, uh, of continuous improvement. But I think we right now live in a time where we think more about a revolution of the manufacturing paradigm. That's amazing. Next paradigm is revolution. Stefan, thank you so much for joining us today and what has been an absolutely fantastic conversation on the Business Lab. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Stefan Jokush, a Vice President of Strategy for Siemens Digital Industries Software who I spoke with from Cambridge, Massachusetts, the home of MIT and MIT Technology Review, overlooking the Charles River. That's it for this episode of Business Lab. I'm your host, Laurel Ruma. I'm the Director of Insights, the Custom Publishing Division of MIT Technology Review. And we were founded in 1899 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And you can find us in print, on the web, and at events online and around the world. For more information about us and the show, please check out our website at technologyreview.com. The show is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll take a moment to rate and review us. Business Lab is a production of MIT Technology Review. This episode was produced by Collective Next. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.